If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew. We'll be jumping around a little bit, so I won't give you a starting point at this point. Um, one of the things uh, that I, I noticed this week, I, I doubt if most of you noticed, but in, in a lot of the new shows and a lot of the talk shows and a lot of the, the, the discussions going on, have you noticed how uh, guys go back and talk about something that happened in 1970? You, you pick up on that? You know about a guy named Shram and Bell and Lanier and, 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 and they go back and, and they even, I noticed one the other day, they even had a, a Facebook post on a, a, a play that was run in 1970 that won the game. And I'm going, that's old hat. That's way in the past. Why would anybody of us in modern times want to go back and look in the past? As I was studying Jesus' sermon, I'm going, oh, that's why. Because there's a, a relevancy. There's a pattern. And, and one of the things that jumps out, uh, whoops, there we go. That's the one I want. The, one, the thing that jumps out is that, that view of pattern, that, that looking back that, that says that helps us understand our present. We've been having some discussions in our country about the late 1700s and what the founding fathers have to say and this constitution that we have, and that's there too, isn't it? And as you, as you look back, one of the things that Matthew does is, is that he starts pulling ideas that all of his audience would know everything about. He wants them to see that God is working in the present the same way he worked in the past. And, and he does that very subtly. It's, 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 it's amazing how he does it. Because what he does is he looks in the life of Jesus and he begins to pull forward the ideas that will, if you know your Old Testament, tell you about a new exodus. He doesn't even use the word Moses. He doesn't. What's it all about? This is how God worked with Moses. This is how God is working with Jesus to do something, to bring us out of something and into something. And he wants to get their attention on what that is. And so he begins to explain it. He says, look, back then they took a baby that was threatened with death. His name was Moses, and he became a leader, and he was sheltered, and the king was trying to kill him. And does that ring a bell in the first chapter of Jesus' life? And then he comes out of Egypt, and they come with a community through the Red Sea and the water, and and as they do that, they go into the wilderness together and, and they travel through the wilderness and they're tested and, and they have wonders that, that the leader does that confirms that he's from God. And, and they gather around a mountain. And they're all invited to go up, but everybody's scared, so they all kind of take a step back and say, Moses will do it. You have to have that leader, don't you? 
And, and as they tell that story, and as you see how he pulls that pattern out of the life of Jesus, you're supposed to go, ah, new exodus. God's at work. He's going to deliver us. He's going to lead us out. He's going to protect us in the wilderness. That's what's happening. And so as you, as you look at that pattern and you understand what's going on, I want you to notice that it takes place in a way that we can get a hold of it and understand it. 2,000 years later. In the case of Moses, 3,500 years later. Why? Because it has a relational context. It has a human context. There are works and there are words. And we, we have to have the background and the history and the works in order to understand the nature of what the words mean. That's exactly how humans work and have always worked and will always work because we're a communicating species. That's how we're built. And we have a context. So Matthew is pulling that context to our attention so that he can begin to speak. And as the ancient Hebrews crossed the sea, they went into the wilderness, they came to a mountain, right? Moses is pushed forward to say, okay, you go talk to him. Who speaks on the mountain? Not Moses. Moses is there to listen, isn't he? Jesus comes forth. He's leading his disciples. He does, the, he does the healings. They get excited about what he's doing. He goes up on the mountain, and he sits down. Who speaks on the mountain? Jesus does. Who's there to listen? Chapter 5 says his disciples gathered around and they sat at his feet. We have 12 Moseses gathered around Jesus who gives us a new Torah on a new mountain just like Moses heard on the old mountain. You see the pattern? We look at that sermon and we say this is Jesus' sermon. No, these are words from God just like the Ten Commandments and the words that God spoke on the Old Testament mountain at Sinai. Because that's the pattern when you begin to see it. When Jesus sits down, he's teaching with authority. His disciples begin to gather around. Moses received ten words. That's what they're called. We call them the Ten Commandments, but actually the Old Testament calls them the Ten Words. And Jesus sits down and he starts his sermon with nine blessings or blesseds. And you go, wow, is that kind of another parallel? What's going on? What's, what's God doing with Moses when he gives them ten words? You say, well, that's the law. No, no, that's not the law. That's the expectations of the covenant. 
This is what people will look like when they follow me. They'll do these things. You say, wait a minute, actions and, you know, we're saved by grace and what's all this action stuff? Jesus sits down on the mountain and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed. And, And he gives you nine descriptions of what life looks like when you live in the presence of Jesus. That's what those beatitudes are. And so as you as as they start out there's there's a, a a relational context here that we don't get because we didn't live in that time. And that relational context is the expectation of a life response in that environment. God says 10 words. Don't steal, don't kill. The people say we will follow that. Don't they? We'll accept that. Jesus sits down and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he begins to do the thing. And and what are the disciples doing? Yeah, they're taking notes. We'll do that one. Yeah, I understand that one. We'll do that one. This is the kind of life that we live. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't understand this. I want you to back up just a minute and, and ask yourself the question. In every significant relationship you have, aren't there expectations of what you should feel and how you should act how many of you get mad because your boss has certain expectations of your behavior at work if you do you may quit and go someplace else yeah you're the boss so you can solve that problem Do you, do you see that it's built in? When, when you stand before a minister and you pledge love and life and commitment to a marriage, aren't there certain expectations you come with? And, and if, if certain things aren't going on, you start getting a little bent out of shape? That's covenant. The only way you can have a relationship with anybody is to have trust in the expectations. Isn't that true? And those expectations aren't just in here. Right? They're behavioral. I noticed that when I started dating Susan. I'd call her on a certain night. We'd talk for a while. We did that for three or four weeks in a row. Guess what happens on the fifth week? She's home by the phone because things were going pretty good. Expectation, behavior, it's all built into us. We are a complex reality. We're not separated out. We don't have cubby holes where we store certain things. We're a full human being. What we believe impacts our behavior. What we believe impacts how we feel. How we feel impacts what we believe. Isn't that true? That's why I think God says, here's my ten words. This is what I want to see happening. These are the things that I want to stand out in the life of Israel. Jesus says, nine blessings. If you follow me on this mountain, this is going to be true in your life. Do you see it? 
I think that's what's going on. Because when he sits down, he starts talking about something that's tough for us. It's a big word, righteousness. Boy, I mean, there have been so many arguments over what that word means throughout history. You know, that, there was many wars fought in Europe over the meaning of that word between religious groups. Okay? And so we have imputed righteousness. God says you're righteous. He, he, he says you're righteous because of his blood. And we understand that, and I believe that. But righteousness is also a word that is true in every relationship. And here's how we express it. I want you to get it right. True? You're not treating me right. How do you want me to treat you right? You see, righteousness is a relational word that describes that life that Jesus brings us in big terms. Yes, he gives us his righteousness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that behavioral expectation that comes along with a commitment to a covenant. It's built in, isn't it? You can't get away from it. You either live it from inside out or you don't. And that's where Jesus is headed. That's what he wants to talk to us about. And so that righteousness is there. Jesus speaks on the mountain. How do I know that he's speaking for God? On another mountain, just a year or so later, Jesus starts shining. The three apostles look at him. There's Elijah and Moses. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. And, and in that case, what does God say? Moses, or Peter says, I'll build you all three tabernacles. And Jesus says, God says from the mount, on the mountain, this is my son. Listen to him. God speaks on the mountain again, very clearly. At the very end, the last thing that's said in Matthew is, all authority is given to me on, in heaven and on earth. What's that claim being? Who speaks for God? It's very clear Matthew has a, a, an answer for that. So once you see that context, now then the question comes, which, which Torah are you going to follow? The one on Sinai or the one on the hill in Galilee? Which, which Torah, which teaching, which instruction? You're going to live in the blesseds, you see? I'm not saying the Ten Commandments don't count anymore. I'm just saying Jesus is redefining that life in a different way. He's wanting us to look at it in a different way. He wants us to see we're blessed. And the reason that's important is because blessed isn't something you do to get something. You don't go out and say, okay, how can I be poor in spirit so I can, you see? How do I become pure in heart so I can be? It's not if you do this, you get that. That's not what the blessings are. The blessings are descriptions of what you already have in the relationship. It's flourishing. 
This is Jesus' life that he's bringing us into. Not that we have it perfectly, but this is where he's going to take us if we hang in there. That's where we'll end up with our life, Andy, with the blessings. And as I think about those blessings and as we look at them, the question comes very quickly in Matthew. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Which voice do you listen to? Which, 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 who, who is it that you follow? Well, as you begin to read the rest of Matthew, and I showed you last week, there are five sections in Matthew. They start with something that Jesus is doing, and then they have a long speech, and then they have something Jesus is doing and another long speech, and there's five of those in the book of Matthew. And as he goes through that, every one of those ends with when Jesus finished saying, Jesus finished saying, does that have anything to do with everything is accomplished? Because when he gets to the fifth one of those, it says when he finished saying all these things, he begins to go to the cross and they arrest him and all of that begins to happen. And there is an end, a completion at the end of the book that says, I have all authority. Is there something going on there that says, in Jesus' lifetime, Moses is followed, but when it is accomplished, you will follow my Torah. You will follow my teaching. I think so. And I think he's building that off of what Moses has already gotten started, what God had already planted in the heart of Israel. The reason we can understand what Jesus wants in our life is because he's already shown us through 1,500 years of Jewish history what he wanted in their life. And it's not an accident that the New Testament writers pull from that story all the way through when they're beginning to try to explain it. So Jesus, God gave us 1,500 years of backstory so that Jesus' story would have the impact that it's had. Now, keep that in mind because it's important that we understand that there's a righteousness. He comes down and says, in the next part of this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty plain. There's a righteousness that surpasses what he is seeing in the world around him the righteousness of the Pharisees. And they were supposed to be the most righteous group in Israel at the time. And so Jesus says there's something missing here. The relational claims are, 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 are off. Where do you hear his voice is the question I want to ask. And so the rest of the sermon gives you six examples in chapter 5 of heart problems. You've heard it said, but I say to you, if you look to lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Heart? 
wait a minute, you were supposed to have clean hearts? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as he begins to peel that off and begins to explain it to his disciples so they can get a handle on it, heart is where he starts. Isn't it? It's it's just amazing to me how powerful that is because when you read the Mishnah that the rabbis later developed, they have a whole tractate of about 200 pages. It's the last tractate in the Mishnah. And it's divided into 11 sections. And in that 200 pages and 11 sections where they're trying to define what pure means, the heart is not mentioned except one time. Once. It's all about you have to do this this way. And if you do it that way, it's unclean. It's, it's not fit for God's presence. And, and, and they, they have rabbinic arguments about it. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees because the Mishnah is the production of the Pharisee group after the destruction of Jerusalem. So as you, as you see what's going on, that's how we define stuff, isn't it? Isn't that where all of our arguments are? It's not what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to have a clean heart before God, right? Our argument is how to get that done. And you start trying to say, well, you have to do this or this or this or this. Then it starts an argument. Doesn't it? Jesus doesn't let us get away with that. He says it's in your heart. There's there's another example he gives us. He gives us six other examples, starting in chapter 6. He gives us examples, what he calls righteousness. He gives us six examples. What are they? Giving, praying, fasting, how you use your treasure, what you worry about or not worry about, and how you treat other people, whether you judge them or not. Six of them. There are six examples of the heart. You've heard it said, but I say to you, six examples. That's not an accident. So as he's trying to tell us what this life looks like and what we're supposed to seek, he, ends, he, he says in the midst of the, the, chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What's his righteousness? It's our heart being changed. It's life in the presence of God because Jesus is changing our heart. It grows out of us. It's not something we have to try to define. If we, if we put ourselves in the presence of Christ, he will draw it from us. It's a whole heart response. Jesus says in chapter 15, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For the heart, from the heart comes evil, evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. Do you, isn't that true? What's your heart? The heart is what motivates you. It's, it's what you decide with. It's how you think about things. It's the beliefs that you have. Those are your, that, all that together is your heart. And that's where your actions come from. That's where your thoughts come from. 
And so if we're really going to change our lives, don't you think our heart's going to have to change? Isn't that going to have to be part of it? How do we do that? Jesus says you have to recognize that that's where evil comes from. It's also where good comes from. And as we look at what he's trying, I think what he's saying is basically captured by a little book I ran across. And I'm going to end with this. Uh, I'll recommend it to you. Uh, you may have read books in the past by Gary Smalley. Um, he's gone now. He used to live there for a long time down in Branson, and he started a clinic down there, and his son, I think, is still working, uh, and so forth. But, but he, he wrote a little book called Change Your Heart, Change Your Life. And it's a powerful book of his personal testimony of how he was able to leave some of the malfunctions and dysfunctions in his life that started at an early age. And what he found was that if he was able to change his belief system, he was able to change his heart, and when he changed his heart, it changed his behavior. That makes sense? And so he, he came up with this this idea that as you go let's see I'm going to skip over oh well it's based off of Hebrews 4:12 for the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even into the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart so if you put God's word in it changes your behavior now, that's a pretty simple idea. It's hard to do because it takes a lot of discipline. It takes getting rid of some of the old ideas that we've got and place, replacing them with new ideas. So he identified four areas that he started with. He helped his grandson do them and watched the change in his grandson's life, and they're in your bulletin if you have a bulletin, so you don't have to write these down next. The four areas are loving God, loving others, living with trials or in trials or learning from our trials, and living in forgiveness or learning forgiveness. If you take those four areas and you take those passages of Scripture that are in your bulletin and you use over the next year, memorize those, tear them apart, chew on them. As Ezekiel was told, eat the book right? Eat the book and allow these passages to begin to change the belief system that you have. And you'll notice something begin to happen in your heart that will start coming out. Now, I know that's not the easy, quick answer that a lot of people want, but I think this is an answer that will work. I've seen it in his testimony, I've seen it in his daughter's testimony, I've seen it in his his grandson's testimony, it works. So I'm going to start doing this. It's a challenge. Got an extra day, pray about it, you don't have to do it a lot, but don't move on. Use these four and concentrate on allowing them to change your belief system. Allow it to change your heart. In other words, whoops, listen to him. Listen.